Welcome to episode 23 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. A vase smashes on the floor into lots of little pieces. How do we pick up those pieces and put them back together again slowly so that they may resemble something like it used to, but it's going to be different? Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we'll be speaking with Joe Baker one of the bereavement counsellors who does intake calls and runs support groups at the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement. The Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement is an organisation providing a service for people who have experienced death-related loss. As we're about to find out from Joe, it's not necessarily associated with human death either. In our conversation, we get some profound insights that she's learnt in her training and from listening to people working through the heartbreak of grief. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink an online directory based in Australia, launching in April this year. TalkLink lists mental health professionals like psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists. Users can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area, experience or a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether it's someone that they'd like to connect with. If you're a mental health professional and you'd like to get your name out there and would like to grow your business, you can sign up at talklink.com.au forward slash get hyphen listed. Or you can send an email to hey at talklink.com.au if you'd like to find out more. Okay, let's dive in. Well, my name's Joe. I'm a, a specialist bereavement counsellor at the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement, which is in southeast Melbourne, and a support group coordinator and facilitator. I've been working at the centre for three years, kind of going through a pathway, starting off with education there and then moving into an internship and working as a specialist bereavement counsellor for two years now. So you're the person that receives phone calls from people experiencing grief? Um, Yeah, um, a a bit of everything. So I am actually an intake worker as well. So the intake worker would receive the calls or they go through our reception first and then we get allocated for intake calls, which take about half an hour. And that is generally an assessment of the person's overall well-being, looking at what resources that we might be able to offer might be helpful to them and have a general chat about their experiences. So that's the intake worker. And then I'm also a specialist bereavement counsellor over the duration of them needing counselling through our service. Yeah, wow. So what do you hear, Joe? if someone calls you and reaches out? What, what are some of the stories that you would hear and some of the grief experiences someone might have? Just to give us a picture of, of what, you, what you do. Yeah. So the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement is um, a non-for-profit organisation that is government funded um, through the Department of Health and it provides a statewide service for bereavement through um, death. So when someone's died. So we don't offer a service for people that are experiencing loss or grief um, from other grief from other losses in their life. Now, obviously grief is experienced through so many different types of loss. And and we know that when we're counseling people that a lot of the time, even though they've come to us us through um, a bereavement and someone has died, that there's other factors that come into play and other losses often come out in our conversation. So so we work with all losses, but we're actually only funded to provide bereavement support when there's been death. 
I guess that's a bit curious in the first instance because I would expect grief is usually in context of someone dying. So um, yes, what, yes. when else would someone experience grief? Well, grief um, can occur when there's any any loss, which is often when there's any life transition or change. So when, you know, when we think about loss, it can be anything where there's a significant change or maybe not significant change in our lives, such as um, a relationship breakdown with the bushfires and everything that have been going on and COVID-19 this year. There's so much, there's so much loss, loss of jobs, loss of finances, loss of home, um, weren't parents um, divorcing or splitting up, that's a loss. Um, Lots of losses, lots of, um, I'm even sort of thinking around when I was at Panda, the Perinatal and Anxiety Depression Association, which is also in Melbourne volunteering, um, that there's loss when a couple have a baby and um, a couple become three. Um, When you actually think about the amount of loss there is in our lives, it's often around a, a life transition or change occurring. So, um, and, and people kind of, you know, manage that in different ways a lot of the time. And and some losses are very significant for people, whereas others, it, it wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't grieve. Just to look at that example, are you saying sometimes people experience a loss when they have successfully have a baby and they go from two to three? Oh, look, sometimes, yeah, there's loss of, you know, um, there's loss that we don't always think of. So, I, you know, I remember this, that as you're a couple, um, there's there's loss of you being in a couple relationship when you add a third and then another child to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting. I didn't expect so many different types of loss to cause grief. I guess when I think of those sorts of losses, I think you might experience sadness. So, when does a sadness become a grief and what does that transition look like? How do you know if you're just sad or whether you're grieving? You know, grief is something that everyone experiences at some point in life. If they, if they haven't already, um, I guess, in the context of um, death-related grief, that at some point in their life, all of us are going to experience this. So um, feeling sadness when you have a loss is, is a very usual reaction and a very usual thing in grief. So you know, when, um, and sometimes it's very hard to distinguish. So what, what we might look at is symptoms people are experiencing and for how long they've been experiencing them for. People grieve for a long time and that's a nor- normal process, but we, we may look at symptoms of what we call prolonged grief disorder, which may be after six to 12 months after a death. And if someone is not um, carrying on with their normal activities of daily living, if they're continuing to, you know, maybe not being able to go to work after a certain amount of time or prolonged period of time, um, if they're uh, really pining and yearning for the deceased, if, they're um, very preoccupied with thinking about um, the person that that has died Um, and in depression I I think that there's often uh, more risk of feeling suicidal Um, whereas with when your people are grieving it tends to be more of a longing to want to join that person Um, so uh, thinking and um, having suicidal ideation rather than um, 
more sort of active suicidal thoughts. I st there's some of the things that can be different when you're looking at depression and, and prolonged grief disorder. There's about roughly seven to 10% of the population that go on to not adapt to their loss and grief. Um, so that's when we'd be looking at things like this and looking at symptoms and, and, and using strategies and helping people to, to adapt to their loss. Um, but when we talk about sadness, I think, you know, sadness is, is a very usual reaction that we all feel. And when we're experiencing loss, it's very heightened. I also, you know, when we're looking at grief, we, we really talk a lot about and help people to recognize that it's very multifaceted and that all aspects of our life are really affected by grief, as in it really makes us question our spirituality. Um, it makes us question um, what our meaning and purpose in life. We have physical symptoms. We may get headaches, feel sick a lot of the time, um, or have you know suffer from a broken heart, literally with pains in our chests. Um, we we may want to retreat socially, or we may want to spend time with people all the time. So our social world may change, and emotionally. We may experience emotions that we've never felt before or they're very heightened. So it's, um, it affects all aspects of our lives. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the, the phone calls that you do receive. What are some of the stories that you may hear coming in? Uh, we, we hear all sorts of stories, um, all sorts of losses. We counsel people who have experienced the loss of a pet um, and or a loss of parents, um, a loss of, loss of partners or death of partners. Um, and at the moment, we have several support groups running to support people that um, uh, most of which are death specific. So we have a death of a parent support group going. We have several of those going at the moment. We have um, a younger bereaved partners support group. So if people are experiencing grief through the loss of a, a partner under the age of 55, roughly at the moment, we have a specific support group for them. Um, and we have a bereaved father's support group. And we have a children's um, support group too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you talked about the length and duration of grief. What is yeah. the typical time period that someone experiences grief for? Well, we don't tend to um, put time frames on grief because it may be that someone is grieving and, and will continue to grieve the loss of a significant person in their life forever. So it's, um, and that could be quite usual. Um, so it's more if it's really interfering with their life that, that um, well, I guess it, um, to, to just let you know that it's only roughly about 7% of people, 7 to 10% again of people that actually need to access bereavement counselling because the majority of people adapt to their loss and transition through that change with the support of family and friends or out in the wilder world or, um, you know, are able to do that themselves. So, so there's only seven to 10% of people that actually need to, or feel it would be helpful for them to access um, specialist bereavement support. Do you see a split between male and female? 
Um, I think that we see more females that access supports through us. I think that's um, a traditional thing in that often women will access all supports for their mental health a bit more than men do. And um, you may know a bit, you know, even have some insight into that. Um, and I know in our support group settings and individual counselling settings, there are more females than men. But I think there's more men that are accessing our services. And, and I think um, it's really important to recognise that everybody grieves in a different way. And when we look at the difference in gender and grief, we often look at styles of grieving um, and often typically although not always and it's really important to remember that everyone's individuals but typically men may have what we call an instrumental style of grieving which means that they tend to really be in their head a lot they they may do things um, and be more active um, to display their grief and to to cope with their grief whereas women may be well we kind of like say men are often more in their heads and women are often more in their hearts they may um, seek more social support they may want to be around people more they may feel their emotions um, I don't know if strongly is the right word to say but be a bit more in touch with their emotional reactions than men some of the time bearing in mind that everybody's so different um, and I think that's possibly why more women access support they they sometimes like to be in more social groups and settings or to be at, or talk more about what they're feeling and what they're experiencing yeah interesting so you talked about instrumental so in your head which is typically men yeah uh, what, what was yeah. the one for women yeah. called um intuitive intuitive what are the other types of styles of grieving um that's the two styles that we talk about mostly and I think the reality is that everyone's blended you know, on a continuum so somewhere down down you know on a scale um, you know in reality that's we all have you know different parts and different different ways that probably tap into both of those and a lot of people are blended but it does actually really help people to understand themselves and others when they're kind of thinking uh, you know oh you goodness, that person doesn't care or that person is, is not okay because they're crying too much to, to kind of bring that round to, well, we're just different in how we, in how we deal and cope with, with our grief and that's okay. And it may not be that um, pe people can be misinterpreted through this, which I think it, is why it's really important to, a really important point. If I can give you the example, say, um, of Rosie Batty when her son Luke died, um, she was would be what we called an, an instrumental griever, which is not always so typical of females. So she fought to advocate for family violence and she became Australian of the Year. But say perhaps in the media sometimes or the persona she gave off was that, you know, very tough and, and maybe that she didn't care. And, and I believe that, you know, since all the campaigning, she was an instrumental griever and she channeled her grief into doing um, and I believe that possibly, I may not have this right, but that she's, she's really said, now is my time to grieve. You know, a couple of years later, she was ready to, to grieve, you know, um, a bit more intuitively once she felt she'd done what she needed to do. And sometimes people can get misconstrued 
in this way for looking like they're kind of like hard or don't care. And, and I think it's a really important point to raise. The, the other thing as well is it, it's with relationships that, you know, maybe with a couple who, um, or um, in relationships when, when they may have a child that has died that, that um, often, you know, the way a man and a woman grieves is so different and can cause a lot of relationship problems and that really it's all about the grieving styles more than anything else. And, and that would be because typically the man would become an instrumental griever sitting in his head and the woman may become a bit more intuitive, vocalizing and verbalizing and showing and demonstrating the emotions and reaching out to her network. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Look, on the whole, as I said, I think it's important not to generalize everyone, but it really helps. Psychoeducation is a big part of our role. So it's helping people understand this, that, um, you know, to, to really kind of look and think, if you're thinking someone's not caring, or they're not okay, because they're crying a lot, that this is how they cope. And this is, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one person's grief is kind of worse or better than another's, that we all do it differently. So the, with the instrument mental being their head is 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 kind of one part of it it's probably a bit brief but it's sort of really kind of like doing so throwing yourself people people that are instrumental might um, um you know go down to the shed and build a memorial or they may really think about suing other people and getting justice or they may do things to channel their grief which is very helpful for them yeah yeah the same as you know crying a, a lot of the time or really feeling the emotion of grief as well um this might be um like an opportune time to talk about something else that's related to that in um it's called the dual process model of coping really but we use it predominantly with grieving because it really helps people to understand their grief as similar to grieving styles and it's all interwoven but um, the, the, the dual process model of grief, if you think of it, or I like to think of it as two circles or two islands. Um, and we often draw, we draw with this with people to help them kind of understand what they're experiencing and how they're coping. That one, one island is the island of loss and grief. And the other island is the island of life. And when you're in the island of loss, you're very much moving towards your pain and suffering. You're very much may be with your emotions or be with your thoughts and actually attending to your, what we call the grief work or, or attending to your grief. When you're in the island of life, you're attending to what you need to do to make life work and pulling yourself or being drawn away from your grief. Does that make sense? So someone who may be experiencing grief might switch themselves onto the life island and go to work, yep. put on their work face, do what they need to do to pay the bills, to continue being a professional. And they've moved away from their grief for that moment. They're not thinking about their loss. But yep. that night, just to use an example, they may go home and after they've cooked dinner, they become overwhelmed with a feeling of loss. And all of a sudden yep. they've moved to the island of loss and grief. Is that basically yes. the concept? Yes. Yeah, very much so. So when we, we talk about people and provide psychoeducation to them for them to understand how they're coping and what they're experiencing, we always use this. It's a real key concept. So, and 
so if, for example, if somebody went straight back to work after a significant bereavement and they just distracted themselves from their grief all the time, they've kept very busy, maybe socially, working, whatever, and because they don't want to feel their pain, that is that can often come back and bite you later. So what, what we try to get people to understand is that that to actually the, the main thing, the most important thing is for people to oscillate from one circle or one island to the other. So sometimes I use the metaphor of being on a boat. So you travel from one island to the other and then trying over time to make a conscious decision to go from one island to the other. So you're not kind of dragging yourself around. And so, because we all need to be in that island of life, we need to do things that make life work for us, but we also need to spend time acknowledging to ourselves and validating that we are really sad. And we may be feeling symptoms of um, other emotions such as shame and guilt and very painful emotions. And if we carry them around with us 24 seven, Oh, that is not healthy either. So the oscillating from one island to the other is what is really important to help us cope. And I think it's also called the job process model of coping. So it's also can be used for any life transition. This is, and this is the kind of things we do in bereavement counseling and talk around with people to help them make sense of, of you know, this really terrible experience that, that has happened to them. That visual is really powerful, the two islands and visiting one, and you can't be on both at the same time. I've literally drawn them out as you described them. I think that's a very useful analogy and a very powerful visual. I guess no conversation about grief can be complete without talking about stages of grief. Um, so yeah. my question would be, is this yeah. still a valid model? Do we still talk about the stages of grief? And can you maybe talk us through what some of those are? Yeah. Um, so the stages of grief was uh, originally devised by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Um, I think, I'm not exactly sure, I think probably in the 70s or 80s, it was around for a long time. It still is around for a long time and it does have merit. Um, it was taken a bit out of context at the time because it was actually used with people that were dying rather than people that were bereaved. We don't really use this very much anymore, and I'll go on to talk about this, but I think it's important to acknowledge that it was the beginning of grief research and has merit. Um, yeah, so the stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, in more recent times, there, another one has been added on, which is meaning making. Um, mm. So they ha are useful and they, was, they were actually used more as a linear model. So going through those stages was seen as a linear model. And I think that in more recent times, we kind of know that grief is not a linear process that in reality, you may feel all these stages and you may go through all these stages, but you may go through um, denial and then some acceptance and then back to feeling angry again. And, and or you may feel some of these emotions at the same time and symptoms at the same time. So, so over time, we, we try to think with some about some different concepts and what might be helpful for individual people because I think that the trouble with 
having a linear model in stages is that if people don't get to a sense of acceptance and often after a particular time frame, for example, they might think a year has gone by, I've been through all the anniversaries and I still feel really bad. I still feel terrible and I don't, I think there's something wrong with me. Well, we know that that is, may not be helpful for people. So we don't really talk about acceptance and grief anymore. We tend to use the words adapt, adapted to and integrate. So integrating grief into our life. And the way we do that um, tends to be more through um, things like helping people to make meaning out of what they've experienced. So when we talk about that, we're really looking about a person's assumptive world. We're looking at, you know, what your worldview as an individual, and, and that means a person's beliefs, um, their belief system, um, their worldview, the way we think things should be, um, and where, you know, where we get that from, and what that means, and often, what will happen is when someone's experienced a significant death in their, in their world or someone close to them or someone in their life that is influential, that um, that can be shattered. Their assumptive world can be shattered and they may not know who they are anymore. They may not know um, what, what the world means anymore. And part of our role is helping people to helping to break that down with people as individuals so assumptive world is your how you put the world together yeah so so you know in, in our assumptive worlds i may assume that my grandparent is going to die before my mother who's going to die before me who's going to die before my child um i may i may assume that that my dog is going to live to 14 years old i may um assume that um, I'm going to grow old with my life partner yeah, and we're going to exactly. die in an old age home together. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And so when, when your partner does die, your assumptive yeah. world is, is shattered because in this context or that example, your partner has died well before the old age home and now you're left still trying to put your life together. So your assumptive world yeah. is disrupted. Exactly. And sometimes I use um, like the metaphor of if you, you know, a vase smashes on the floor into lots of little pieces. How do we pick up those pieces and put them back together again slowly so that they may resemble something? It may resemble something like it used to, but it's going to be different. So how do you put that vase back together? How do you guide someone to do that? Um, well, it takes time and, um, and it's about building a rapport with clients um, and in support group settings and allowing people to, first of all, tell their story as an individual. So when we're trying to make, helping people to make meaning out of their experiences, we're looking at their story. So that might be the event story, what has happened and what impact has this had on your life? What's the significance of this to you? Um, and then we might also look at the backstory of what has happened. And, and sometimes, you know, when people um, close to us have died, it can bring up a lot of negative emotion as well. So sometimes we might really explore and companion alongside people to help them 
make their own sense because they are the, the experts of their own worlds. Um, in, you know, what, what was that like? And what was the person like? And what was your relationship like? And, you know, and sometimes that may mean looking at difficulties in relationships and, and mm. guilt and, and, you know, emotions that are really difficult to, to think about and, and feel. Yeah, in fact, offline, when you and I talked, you told me that you prefer not using the phrase loved one, a loved one's passed away, because some of those complex relationships can involve things that are difficult to deal with. Um, can you maybe talk about that a little bit more? Because I thought that was a brilliant insight you had. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, the, the thing is, is that people's lives are messy. And, and we know that, you know, when we meet someone and or whether it's through the intake process or with counseling or in a group that even when we finish that their life is still going to be messy so you can't you're meeting people where they're at at that particular time and the reality is we don't know what has gone on with relationships and in people's worlds and sometimes there's a lot of difficulty in relationships um there's difficulties with parents there's difficulties with siblings um, there's difficulty with friendships, teachers, all our relationships are sometimes quite complicated. So um, giving people the space to feel safe um, in a confidential environment that they can really open up about what their relationship was like. This is looking you know, at the backstory of their relationship with the person who's died. We, and so, you know, myself and my colleagues don't like to say loved one because we're making assumptions about people's relationships. Um, for, for me, I, I like um, significant other, significant person, um, or we might say the deceased um, person. And therefore we're not bringing our own assumptions into the counseling arena and we're you know, letting people feel really safe to, to explore some of the you know, difficulties around relationships. And, and when someone dies, that comes to the surface. It's like stirring up a, the murky waters often and, and giving people the space to talk about what it really was like so that they can process some of this really, really hard sort of stuff and hard emotions that arise. I'd never appreciated the extent of that. I'd always, I guess, assumed that if a significant other passes away or dies, then you're left with the loss of that. But you've just opened my eyes to a lot of other complexity. Someone may mm. have, you know, had a very abusive relationship that they've managed to just put in the background. Yeah. But when that person dies, not only do they yeah. have to deal with the loss of a significant other, good, bad, or otherwise, but now they need yeah. to deal with processing perhaps a lot of other stuff that's come with that, right? That's what you're saying you're, yeah. you're observing yeah. and hearing from people calling through on your line? Yeah. Yeah, and um, obviously we're a, um, a bereavement, a specialist bereavement surf service, but um, as I said, people's lives are messy and they bring a lot of other stuff and we can't you know, put things in neat boxes and say, well, that's a relationship issue, so we're only talk, going to talk about your grief because you're never going to build rapport with people. So predominantly we're, we're specialists um, at the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement in, in bereavement um, loss, and, but we're also very used to, to talking about a lot of other issues with people. There's a lot of anxiety that comes up when... Um, when they're experiencing loss and grief um, there's trauma people are experiencing trauma and so 
um, we we're looking at that and and sometimes we we have a lot of knowledge in all these areas but it may be that another specialist service is um, would, would be better for that individual person too so we're looking at all all um, all parts that kind of come into a counseling arena yeah mm. what happens if someone suppresses grief you talked about the fact that um, not going to visit that grief and loss island is not a good idea what happens and what do you see if someone just suppresses that and never goes there um well often we do see people that access bereavement support quite a long time after their loss um and sometimes it is people who distract themselves for so long that I think basically it's exhaustion in the end and wanting things to change in their life. So if you, if you um, distract yourself from grief for, for too much, for some people, I have to say as well, this is so individual. So we want to meet people where they're at. I can't say enough that people people that come to us are the experts in their own world, and we we're listening and we're we're looking to guide um, people with what they bring to us. And some people that's how they cope. They're very very super busy. Um, so we might just look at maybe softening that a little bit, just taking them to the island of of loss gently and slowly, and and carving out time to do that. So sometimes there's a real intention with saying you know how about what would it be like to 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 be with your loss for 10 minutes a day would it be possible to carve out some time and and by doing that that may be looking at photos that may be journaling um something that i heard this week actually which i really really loved in in another podcast for meaning making was um setting an intention to take photos so actually to go out when people are trying to find meaning in their world to take photos of what they find what gives them meaning and purpose and so you may be able to look back at that and that could be anything that could be you know trees and leaves moving and what significance does that have to me um so we we'd work on things with an individual um to help to, to help them adapt over time and to help them to say you know it's okay to feel to feel your feelings and if we don't feel our feelings that sometimes we can be even more exhausted than um well crying is exhausting and and being in our loss is exhausting but so is just keeping busy 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 and trying to distract ourselves so we look at, at people's coping mechanisms but it might be something we suggest what we call dose their grief spend 10 minutes you know and if if you feel sad you know how does that feel it does that feel okay for you to kind of let go to what may be a protective mechanism for a very short period of time either with someone that's around you that's supportive or in a supportive environment that you feel you would feel safe to do that i once saw an animation on social media that really spoke to me it was a box with a ball bouncing around inside the box. And there was a little panel on one side which said, you know, sensitive grief activation. Yeah. And the animation started with the ball being really big and hitting and triggering that 
grief yeah. activation all the time. But with time, the ball gets smaller and smaller and smaller and shrinks to the point of where it's now bouncing around the walls, hardly ever touching that activation. Yeah. But it still does occasionally. And the caption read that, you know, this is what grief is like. The intensity of the emotion doesn't decrease with time, but the frequency at which you experience it will. What yeah. is that? Does that ring true to you? And is that what you've experienced? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the acute phase of grief, which we don't like to talk in time frames, but if you think roughly, very roughly, because it's important that people don't think there's something wrong with them if they get to a six or 12 month mark and they, you know, that ball is still really big and hitting around. And that might be when, when someone accesses supports to do things a bit differently, but absolutely, because in the acute phases of grief, you know, I think, you know, we, we've, all of us can imagine a time where we have experienced a loss and what it's like. And then if you kind of wrap that up to someone who's been very close to you, um, a significant person in your life, what the intensity of what that might be like. Um, so that's quite a usual thing to be totally overwhelmed, maybe not getting out of bed, having time off work, crying a lot of the time, spending a lot of our time thinking, pining and yearning for that person or, or being. Um, so I, I think some of this is softening around what is usual and expected, which is why we do a lot of psychoeducation about, as I said, that multifaceted effects of grief and how it affects us as a whole person so that people can understand, oh, no, I'm not going crazy. It's okay. This is, this is quite usual a usual thing to experience. So, but over time, people will adapt and they will integrate um, their loss and their grief into their life. But what we do notice is that around significant times and anniversaries that the, the ball will get bigger again. That, wow. you know, uh, the anniversary of a death or someone's birthday or significant times that, have, that are remembered that, that ball will get bigger again. And that, and that may be a time to really look at some strategies to provide extra support for yourself. And again, that is quite a usual thing for people to experience. Joe, someone once told me three weeks to every year that you've been with a significant person is how long the acute stage of grief could last. And this should come with all the caveats of it. It'd be unique for every single person, but it's sort of a back of the envelope rule of thumb sort of figure what what do you so for example if you've been with in a relationship with someone for 10 years you know it's it's 30 weeks um, of acute grief that you may experience uh, and what do you think of that sort of number and is that helpful or isn't it um i i don't think you can put a number like that on individual people so i i don't think that is helpful because um, I don't think it's the amount of time that you've known someone or you could absolutely fall in love with someone after two weeks. And, um, you know, I'm trying to sort of think of examples um, or maybe, you know, a parent that has been a very difficult relationship with or somebody that um, you're estranged from and, and you, you don't um, haven't seen or somebody haven't seen for a long time so I don't I don't know that that is helpful I think that what is helpful is meeting people where they're at 
and always remembering that they're the experts in their own world and you can get a sense of what it's like from them by building rapport and having um, open conversations. Um, and if people don't want to have on open conversations, then that's okay. That's our role to, to look at why and um, you know what is going to be helpful. So setting goals for people as well is something we do. Some people find it easier to talk and be open, others don't. And um, again, it's all back to the yeah, individual. Well, along the lines, along the lines of meeting someone where they're at, what advice would you give to someone who has a friend or maybe significant person in their life who is experiencing grief? What kinds of things can they do to help support their friend or loved one or significant person? Yeah, um, I'll just. Before I forget, I just want to mention as well that um, the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement last year put out an app called My Grief, which has two sections. One is when you're grieving and one is supporting someone else who's grieving in it. Um, and that is readily available. Um, Great. I'll, I'll link that in yeah. the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Along with fact sheets, there's a lot of fact sheets and information on our website too. Um, but back to your question, so supporting someone people when they're grieving they often feel like they're on a bit of a timeline and that it gets old for other people um so i think it's i think it's um i think it's like with any mental health concerns although grief is not a mental health issue it's a normal thing that happens to people um it's asking you know are you really okay i think you know what's it asking those questions it may be going around with a meal um it may be just checking in with your friends or and family um and letting people talk about what they're experiencing without making them feel that it's kind of getting a bit old and dull it, it, it is hard because i think you know people put on a face a lot of the times they don't want to be that person that's still sad so many whatever months or years down the track but that what we're seeing is this affects people for a long time and that if people have honest conversations you can almost do the same thing as like with the islands you could say hey could we carve out 10 minutes to just talk about how I really feel um and then we'll go back to talking about other things and and having fun because if you don't address how people really feel with each other it's not helpful for that person that's going through grief. And also it's something that we all will experience. So, you know, sometimes in, until you've been through something yourself, you may not quite understand, but you can extend just, you know, that helpful kind of sort of kind arm to people to um, know that there's someone there if they're having a, a bad day or a bad hour or a bad moment. That wraps up our conversation for today with Joe. We'd like to send a big thank you to Little Finch Bird and Bazza1991 for their reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single one and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. Thank you so much and see you again soon. Mm-hmm.